Let's start. Let's start. Um, let's start. God, you can. <coughs> there's two tables of troublemakers. Actually, there's there's one, two, three, four, five. Um, couple of things. First, I, I want to welcome Bob back. I, I don't know if you know, but he was, he, um, I, I was under a misunderstanding here because I thought before he left, he said he and his wife, I thought they were going biking. So my picture for the last month is that they were toughing it on bikes all over America and I just learned that they did a cruise to England and France and tough life, tough life. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm so glad and he, he said he hasn't finished a book, I, he's been on a, um, and he says he's going to be quiet and you all know that's not going to happen, it's just not going to happen. Um, I've missed your questions and, and I'm saying this really, more than that I missed that you are always so fully present <laughs> and, and your questions make it clear. Um, so it's anyway, I'm glad you're safe and back again and it's good to see you. So any, any prayers? Dr. Ju, start it. Yeah, any prayers for tonight? And yeah. My dear friend, my dear friend, Sister Diane, who passed away. Passed away. Sorry. What's your name, Anne? Her name is Diane. Diane. How old? She was in her 80s. Was this sudden, expected, or? She had been ill for a long time. We went to St. Louis to, to visit our dear friends, and the day we arrived, we were told that she had, she had to go to the hospital, and she refused all care and said she was going to go home and die. And she did. God. If, if more of us could be sort of, you know, it's, it's really strange. Suzanne's aunt went through a period where she thought she was going to die. Her, her, she'd lost her husband. She thought she was alone, very independent woman, and had made up her mind that she was going to die and sort of resigned herself. Suzanne went out to visit her, and, and she was there for a while. And um, Suzanne would pray in the evenings you know, in the bedroom, and I think that was different for her, but she reached a point, and I think maybe Suzanne maybe said something, maybe it's not your time, and Anne was determined to die, <laughs> but she didn't, and she reached a point where she said, it's not time for me yet, and it's like she picked up her life and sort of went on and waited for the moment to come, and it's such a mystery, God, such a mystery. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and for your presence through the day. Um, I want to offer a special thanksgiving for the poets they've been reading and particularly now for Dostoevsky because we're coming to the end of his work. Um, it, it's a work that's probably more deeply prophetic than any other novel that I know of in the last several centuries, maybe even from Dante and Shakespeare. Shakespeare is not a novelist, but um, 
And, and, he, and he's done something that no other writer has done. He has just so opened the human soul and everything transcendent in it. Um, in um, the danger it places itself because it's open to divine things, um, which means it faces evil. I think that's at the heart of our Christian faith, and I think there are some faiths that have put a wall in the way, but Dostoevsky takes that wall away and, um, and with him has the courage to go into the soul when it's dealing with evil, something demonic. And I'm not just speaking, you know, I'm not just speaking about Ivan, I'm speaking about a culture that's then in some sense is being taken over by something demonic. He had the courage to enter that, to risk it, to show the effects of evil, what happens when individuals or a culture deny God, um, how, how much they get implicated in um, violence and death. Um, we're watching the disintegration of a human soul, we're also watching the disintegration of a human society of people and also offering a way out um, in the hope that he offers at the end. So for all that this story has given us to, in our eyes, what we, I, I hope, not just see in this book, but learn to see from this book in our own country because so much of what's going on um, is exactly what Dostoevsky's looking at. So it's one of the most prophetic books so in some sense, it picks up what scripture offers us and brings it into our own life. So the great gift that um, this book has been for us, I hope, um, for the darkness it gives us the courage to face and for the hope it offers, I offer a special Thanksgiving. Um, I um, offer a special prayer for Anne's friend, Diane. Receive her into your kingdom if there's um, any sins to be worked off, if there's a time in purgatory, let our prayers help her. Um, joy into joy, she's going home. She's going home. So receive her, welcome her, um, wash away her sins. Let her time in purgatory, <laughs> priests who say poor souls in purgatory always stun me. How can purgatory be anything but a joy? God, you're looking forward to heaven and you're being given the, the grace, an opportunity to work off your sins. And I mean, that's the image of purgatory that we get from Bunte. People are happy. They're singing. They're praying. All that they're doing, they're doing together, knowing they're going to share a great joy. So if there is a time in purgatory, let her be full, let her, let her experience it as offering surprises surprises and joys and things she didn't expect everywhere speed her on her way and for those of us that she's leaving behind let there be a great hope in what she's doing particularly for her friends um, Connie's not here she's always here it sounds like she's worn out um, be with her watch over her and all the other people who are not here today we're glad for Bob's safe return and for our gathering today. Um, let your peace be with us in all that we do through the rest of this evening. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Sorry?
Yeah, she is not. She, she, she's having trouble with her camera, so. Um, looking ahead, Bob asked me, I've gone over this, and I'll send out another note um, in the next few days. Next week, you know we're off. I, um, it's a break, and then we're going to start moderns. I mean, we will be full square in the modern world. Um, what was I going to say? Um, a break next week. I'm going to do everything I can to start, well, actually I'm only half apologizing. I'm going to get through the end of Dostoevsky with a lot of um, summary, because I know you've all read it thoroughly. You could pass a quiz easily if I gave it to you. Um, but I'm going to summarize because I want to get to some larger questions. I mean, we've been on this book a long time, and I, I'm trusting, I think, with good sense that most of you have taken it in, how, you know, whatever struggles you've had reading. It's a, it's a long book. I think it's the longest book we will have read. Um, it's a long book, so kudos for all of you guys for staying with it. Um, but next, next week a break. Tonight's over. We will finish this book. And I'm going to offer high praises and also some very, very serious reservations. But I want to wait on that. But looking ahead, break next week. We're going to start Moderns the next week. And I decided, I don't know if this was a change from our schedule, but we're going to start with Hemingway. We're going to do a couple of, we're going to do three short stories, two of which are two, two or three pages long. So I don't want to hear anybody complaining about <laughs> reading loads. Um, one of them is about 20 pages. But here, just this note to know where we're going. We are entering. Um, a, a world which in the early part of the 20th century was called an existential world of nothingness. In one of the stories, Hemingway is going to present one of his characters um, giving the Lord's Prayer in Spanish, but it's going to go like this. Our Father who art nada, nada be thy name. Nada, not, and it goes on like that. Nada, 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 nada. So, if you, if you thought coming into this course you were going to read a lot of romantic literature, you already know. I mean, that illusion should have been dispelled a long time ago. We are entering the modern world, and it's not all going to be bleak. Hemingway is going to write these stories that will be bleak. That's our, wor that's our world. With Dostoevsky and Melville, we were on here, so I want to put this in perspective just to, you know, for you to keep it in mind when you start the reading we're about to take on. With Melville and Dostoevsky, we are on the threshold of a change. We're at that member, we said, Melville's on that threshold. It's the 19th century conflict between science and religion. That's where we were poised, right? Do Melville, do so we read those two books, and my claim is they're both prophetic. Uh, Melville's looking at a, a dying Protestant New England world. Dostoevsky is looking at Russia at a time when it's dying. Old Mother Russia is on its way out. And we're watching a whole world being crushed. And you know from my own words recently that I'm saying there's something we've got to look at in Dostoevsky that's not obvious in the book because immediately following Dostoevsky we've got Solzhenitsyn who's exiled from his country and is giving the Harvard address in which he's condemning America. He said if he were in Russia, he'd be condemning Russia. He has very 
little good to say about either country because either both countries are under the influence of modern enlightenment ideas and they're losing their past. So we should be at home and I hope to God you guys are taking what we're learning and taking it into the world because that's our faith and we're being given these amazing works to strengthen us. But we're on the verge of um, modernity and nothingness. Our Father who art nada, nada be thy name, nada, it goes on like that. It's a parody. Hemingway knows exactly what he's doing. And by the way, Hemingway is going to convert to Catholicism. It's not going to spare his life, I'll go into that. But, but we will read two books, or two stories that are very short, and one that's 20 pages. And when we're finished with that, we will read The Old Man of the Sea which is the book I think that finally earned him the Nobel Prize and it's the book that um, Faulkner thought so high of. He said when Hemingway wrote that book he finally discovered God and Hemingway was already one of the greatest American writers alive. So we're entering the modern world when we come back. It's going to be a very bleak world, it's going to be our world, but we're going to get it through the, um, the work of these really amazing artists. Hemingway after Hemingway, we'll do, I think, some of the women writers that I've mentioned. The one that I'm looking forward to is um, Catherine Ann Porter's Flowering Judas, which to me is one of the most beautiful stories. It's about Flowering Judas. It's about betrayal um, on the part of a young Catholic woman. These women writers are going to have very little good to say about women. <laughs> if women feel masked, <laughs> you might want to want to come for the next month or so, but um, we're going to take on all these women writers who are among the most amazing writers in the 20th century. And then we'll do, you know, um, Elliot's Murder, Murder in the Cathedral and Faulkner. Um, and that, that will do it for us. Um, so, I'll, I'll give you, I'll send you this week okay. the reading list again Good. for the 10th time. Um, I just wanted to I'll send you a reading list this, um, this week so you can have it again. But I've already sent you the Hemingway, so you should have it. The one thing you need to do is buy a copy of Old Man on the Sea. And any copy will do. I think I gave you my edition just if you want to get it. When you read it, just mark the days. Because you know, he's out at sea for so many days. So, so when I'm reading, if, if our pages don't line up, at least you'll have some sense of where to go to, so we can stay together when we look at passages, okay? So that's it, okay? Any questions about what we're gonna do? We are entering the modern, the existential void, the world of nothingness. This is the, the world in which um, Freud and Darwin and um, Marx shape the modern mind. Um, one of the interesting comments that I'll make when we start is that Hemingway lived at that time when those men were shaping the minds of everybody else. So they're all, all the modern artists are coming in under the influence. Marx, Freud, Darwin. So we're entering our world, okay? Anybody, any questions about what we're doing? I think I. Amazing and existential.
existential void. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, 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 I'm being honest. I'm being honest. I'm being really honest. I am so aware uh, that I'm losing it all, and I, um, and I think it's probably time for me to step back and out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give what I think are the greatest books. In fact, I've had misgivings about it. I even talked with Suzanne about it. One of the last works that I wanted to do with you is a Faulkner's trilogy. It's three novels. I think it's, they're extraordinary. It, and it's, a, it's about another anti-hero, like the anti-heroes we've been, you know, they're not saints. We're not reading um, hagiography. Hagi We're not reading Lives of Saints. We're reading people in mid-world. We're reading people who are struggling to overcome evil in the world. So, for me it's strengthening because it helps us, it seems to me it can give us strength and courage to deal with the same problems because that's our world. So we have some help in watching these people take on these struggles. You, I'll wait on my opening comment, but... Um, so I actually had misgivings about doing the trilogy because it's a long work. And actually the one work that I wanted to finish with was um, Eliot's The um, Four Quartets. But we'll see. See how you guys are holding up and see how I'm holding up by then. Could you, uh, in between now and then, consider a reading list for us as we go on on our own? Boy. You know, I, I think that is such a... No, yeah, right. Actually... You know, go, I mean, it, there's really so much good. Go back and read the Iliad because you'll read it for the first time. I mean, now you have a sense of something, but you'll read it differently. The problem, I can't, I'm, I'm saying this really honestly. I stopped, I mean, when I started writing seriously, my reading cut back. I'm not current on anything. And I don't know that I could give you anything more important than what I've given you in this class. I'm just not aware enough of what's good and what's current or I've given you the best of the age that I know you know up through mid-century um, beyond that I'm in the dark um, I wish I could on who oh wow yeah Right, 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 right. I've struck. You know. Some of us started late, so we haven't done any of the big part. Say, say it again. Some of us started late, so we don't. We haven't done any of the beginning part. God. We're not letting you go. I hold on. I'm calling it. Stop. We're going on. Out of hand, out of hand. But it's a great compliment that people just want more and more and more. That they're not like. <laughs> Thanks for that, Ann. Just on a note, I, here, I've struggled with Jane Austen. And I'm, I'm saying this with the same sort of misgivings, except not quite as intensely as I do with Dostoevsky. And I'm saying this really honestly. When I look at that period in my life after I read Jane Austen, when. when I began to major in literature. I, I looked at Jane Austen, I think I've said this to you guys, I looked at Jane Austen as giving me my domestic eyes. I'm not kidding. That, that's as high a compliment as I can give. 
she helped me to see a domestic world, marriages, in a way that even Shakespeare didn't, because her works are novels, and you go more in depth to what she's doing. So I hope I see her in heaven because I want to thank her, because she and, she and Dickens are sort of the ones who made me realize there was something great there. Wait just one second. Really great. And I thought about doing Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, and Mansfield Park, which I think is her greatest work, and nobody reads it. Mansfield, the heroine of Mansfield Park comes, comes closest to Christ of any character in her corpus. And nobody reads it. And I thought about doing Dickens. But when I think about the works we've been doing, because I'm already extending you guys everywhere, they just didn't come as close as Shakespeare, Dante, or Dostoevsky. Or Faulkner. Um, I mean, stop and think about this. If when you put down a Jane Austen novel, you're in a happy ever after. The marriages are good. The couples have learned. They've learned to put their pride away. They've gone through a period of suffering. That's that's the peripatia, the turn. Her novels all work on the the peripatia, the turn. Every novel deals with a conversion in her heroine and the man. So they're humbled. So when they go into marriage, we know they're ready to love each other, to serve each other. It's, they're good marriages. Line that up against Dmitri and Grushenka, um, Ivan and Katrina. Ivan's going nuts. Um, Dmitri and Grushenka are fleeing to America, of all places. God. Um, set that against Austin's world, and you realize Austin never got close to touching spiritual depths. And I'm not, I hope you hear me, my gratitude for her is deeper than I can express. But I've, I've deliberately, you know, not gotten in the, to those works because, you know, I just don't know how much to put on you guys, how much longer you can tolerate you know this, so it was a matter of choosing things so that all of my choices. I mean, to go to your, you know, to your question, all of my choices had to do with these are among the greatest works that that we can read that speak to our faith and that answer this question that's fundamental to our class. Do we? Where can we find Christ in the world? How deeply? Where can our faith be strengthened by it? So, let me leave it. Okay, because I really want to get on. We'll come back to it um, when I do the reading list. Um, last time we met, we read Sonnet 146. So we've covered the whole sonnet cycle. And it takes me back to a sonnet that we've read before. If I can get through Karen's notes. If you f feel me slipping in some of Karen's insights, just know that it's because she's bringing her own good lights to Shakespeare. Here, Sonnet 94. Remember, this is the sonnet, we talked about it before, where he uses um, and instead of but, to show that there's this congruity. He's not Protestant. He doesn't look at nature as if it's inherently bad. So everything we do, we have to overcome something. God made us good. There's an inherent goodness in this. There's an inherent goodness in nature. Benedict talked about in the Logos in Regensburg. There's this Logos everywhere in nature. It's there. 
It's 94? Yeah. I'm going to give it back to you in a second. Um, so he's talking about this small group of people who receive the gifts that they've been given and do not use them to their advantage. And if any of you have ever struggled with your own gifts, you know that there can be a temptation to use them in the wrong way. I mean, it's just, it's one of the temptations we face, so. It, to me, it's one of the greatest sonnets on that fact, so. Remember we read um, Sonnet 129 about lust, the expense of spirit and a waste of shame is lust in action, he goes on. In Sonnet 94, he's talking about those people who overcome their temptations, okay? Sonnet 94. They that have the power to hurt and will do none, that do not do the thing they most do show, who moving others are themselves as stone. They do not do this so that people will look at them, not teachers, not doctors, not lawyers, whatever our profession, we don't do it for the glory. And by the way, you know that that's one of the temptations that um, Yvonne faces. In the meeting with the devil, the, uh, the, Yvonne says, I'm, um, I'm going to take you to court. You're gonna, I'm going um, to give away the whole story. Um, and you'll be indicted, and so will I. And the devil says to him, you won't do it because you can't do a thing except for your own glory. You can't perform a good deed, is what he says. Because remember, um, Yvonne doesn't believe in virtue or the immortality of the soul. So the, the devil is once again giving him back his own self. This is about those people who have that power, the temptation to do something because it makes people look at them and they take pride in getting the approval of people. But these people are as stone, that they are so committed to their work, so committed that they they make a Christ-like sacrifice. But by the way, this is partly a description of the poetry we've been reading. Every one of these poets only did that work because they could give themselves up. So completely that they could do the job they did. Is that clear? They didn't have the power to hurt and will do none. God. That do not do the things they most do show who moving others are themselves as stone, unmoved, cold, and to temptation slow. They rightly do inherit heaven's graces and husbands' nature's riches from expense. They are the lords and owners of their faces, others but stewards of their excellence. The summer's flower is to the summer's sweet, but to itself it only live and die. But if that flower with base infection meet, the basest weed outbraves his dignity. For sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds. Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. Doc, sorry, can you? Okay, let's go to um, Brothers Karamazov. Thanks, Karen. If you follow along in the notes, but you know my habits are not to always stay with them exactly. 
I want to remind everything of something that Flannery O'Connor said. I've, I've, I've mentioned it a couple of times. Her comment as a writer, and think about this because Flaubert once said, the priest, I think, and the fireman and the poet all face death, death every day. He's saying that of the poet because he knows that for a poet to risk entering the souls of another person is to risk dying. You can go nuts there. You can lose your life. And you know, if you take that seriously, you know what Dostoevsky, the courage that he had to show to go into those characters to show them the way he has for us. So, Flannery O'Connor once said, if we don't learn to see ourselves in every character, I remember saying this to you when we read Othello together, because I remember saying, if we don't see ourselves in, Eva, or in uh, um, what's his name, God, Othello and, Iago. thank you, God, oh, it's getting worse. If we don't see ourselves in Iago, who's one of the most despicable characters in all literature, we're not reading. We're, we, what we want to do is identify that with all the good people so we don't learn to see ourselves. Literature is meant to help us see ourselves where oftentimes we don't want to see ourselves. So one of her comments was that if we don't learn to see ourselves in every character, we're not reading well. We're reading too much for ourselves, for our own ideas. It's important to see ourselves in each other. Remember, Zosima's great truth was we are all guilty and we are all guilty for each other. How can we do that if we don't learn to see the depths of evil in another person? It doesn't mean we don't act, but it does mean we have to risk seeing things that we don't want to see. And along those lines, um, remember in the little work we've done on um, Plato and Socrates, remember that in all of Socrates' um, dialogues, Socrates would always bring his interlocutors, the, the people with whom he was engaged in questioning, to a point of what the Greeks knew and Plato knew as elenchus, if you're looking at my notes, they're there. The elenchus is that point at which we realize we don't know what we thought we do. And we begin to see the ignorance in ourselves and remember and what, one, of the, um, one of the values of the Socratic dialogue is that he keeps meeting these people who think they have answers to everything. And when he questions them and shows them that, that they don't know what they think they know, they begin to hate him, and they hate him enough that they took him to court and killed him. So it's like a prelude to Christ. When somebody starts showing us things about ourselves that we don't like to see, there's something in us that's murderous. And I'm saying that honestly. We want to kill somebody. We want to get them out of the way. So Alenkus is that moment when we begin to see that um, we don't see. And Aporia is that state of perplexity or confusion once that happens. Those two conditions are the conditions for conversions. Okay? Let me repeat it. And Alenkus and Aporia are the conditions for conversion. It can be Lear when Lear turned on the heath. Hamlet, you can, Oedipus, take a look at any character. Any time um, we're moving to a conversion, it's because we go through those periods believing we don't, finally we don't see things the way we should have, 
and we get confused and perplexed and begin to question, we see things about ourselves that need changing, and we undergo a conversion. And the church, in our church, is always there to help us, or Christ is, you know, in, in the sacraments. So almost every work we've read is structured on the peripatia. Yes? And you all know what that means, the, the turn. And anagnorisis. Peripatia, the turn, anagnorisis. A recognition, a seeing. A moment where suddenly we see, we have been seeing things the way they were and it's shocking. It may be about ourselves, it may be about somebody else, but suddenly we realize things aren't the way I saw and a change takes place. Every work that we've read that I can think of has, has been structured around the peripety at the turn. All of Jane Austen's novels, um, all of Shakespeare's. The question that I asked last time, and I just want to take a few minutes with right now, is whether what um, Ivan saw when he came home from um, his visits with uh, Smirjikov was real or not. And by the way, I don't want to forget this. It was in my, sorry, I'm forgotten. Mary Rose is inviting everybody to her house for this um, pilgrimage and a night of prayer. And I guess watching a, a film presentation of the, vis, um, the appearance at um, Fatima. So um, she gave out flyers. Bob, you weren't here. If anybody wasn't here, just take a look at the flyer. Um, but if Mary's hosting this, <laughs> you know that it's going to be good. You know that it's going to be good. I've been cleaning my house for two weeks. <laughs> Stop. You, you know, you can overdo things. Um, okay, was the vision of the devil real? And I want to, I want to quickly rehearse a couple of things before we look at it. In my book, 609, this is in chapter 6, um, in, the, in the fourth part at the end. It's the meeting with the, the Smirjikov. This is the first meeting with Smirjikov. Ivan is talking with him about, remember that exchange early in the novel where Smirjikov kept saying, it's always nice to talk to an intelligent man because it was assuming that Ivan understood everything that he was doing and that what he was doing was Ivan's will. And all of this right now is a shock to Ivan because he's realizing that the two of them were at cross purposes and even though he prides himself on being intelligent, he missed it all. In fact, it's going to surprise Smerjikov because he believes Ivan is an intelligent man and understood all of this when he didn't. But he says on 609 and 10, I understand very well, sir, and since you won't testify about that, sir, I also will not report the whole of our conversation. What happened then was that Ivan um, suddenly went out. Wait, sorry. Oh, sorry, this is. Um, sorry, it's 607. Um, thereby you could have guessed, sir, that if I was dissuading you from Moscow to Shersmajna, um, I meant I wanted your presence closer by because Moscow is far away and Dmitri, seeing you were not away, wouldn't be so encouraged. That is, if he were closer, he'd be, had fewer incentives, more 
reasons not to commit a murder because Ivan was closer. So he starts giving him these reasons that Smerdyakov thought he already knew and Ivan is discovering he didn't know and was in the dark. Go down a few lines in 608. If I'd guessed, I would have stayed, Ivan says. Well, sir, and I thought you guessed everything. And I were just getting as quick as possible out of harm's way so as to turn off, run off somewhere, saving yourself out of fear. You thought everything was much, was as much a coward. You thought every, everyone was as much a coward as you. Forgive me, sir. I thought you were like I am because the two constantly identify with each other. Um, in the second visit, um, Smerdyakov actually um, confesses to the murder. Um, he says, oh, Mike, here. Thanks, thanks. Um, on 623, my page, I'm telling you, you have nothing to fear. I won't say anything against you. There's no evidence. Look. His hands are trembling. Why are your fingers moving like that? Go home. It was not you that killed him. Ivan gave a start, and he remembered Alyosha. I knew it was not me, he began to murmur. You know, Smerdyakov picked up again. Ivan jumped up and seized him by the shoulder. Tell all, viper, tell all. Remember, this is about viper eating viper. That Smerdyakov is a viper killing old Fyodor of viper. Smerdyakov was not in the least frightened. He merely fastened his eyes on him with insane hatred. Well, it was you who killed him in that case, he says. You're still talking about that the same as last time? But last time, too, you stood there and, er and understood everything, and you understand it now. I understand only that you're crazy. Doesn't a man get tired of it? Here we are, just the two of us. So what's the use of putting on... Nobody's around to see them. You can put off your act. Um, or do you still want to shift it all onto me, right to my face? You killed him, and you are the main killer, and I was just your minion, your faithful servant, and I performed the deed according to your word. Now remember, this is one of the most beautiful things about the story. What Dostoevsky is showing us that the modern intellect does not want to see, the modern intellectual, is that ideas have consequences. And Ivan has been, remember, saying anything is possible, there's no God, means you can do whatever you want. And Smerdyakov is the instrument of that idea. He's the one who's actually carrying it out and showing the implications of something that Ivan did not want to face. So remember that ideas have consequences. People can hold theories in their heads, but how often do they ever see the practical consequences, the practical implications of those theories? Let me put it differently. You know that historically laws are made. They were made in, in favor of slavery. Who saw the implications of them when they were made? Laws have been made in support of abortion. Who could begin to see the implications of what would happen with those laws? So very often we have reasons for things in our heads without fully seeing the implications of those ideas, those theories, whatever they are. When he returns home after the third meeting, you know that he encounters the devil. I don't want to go through the whole thing. I, I just want to touch on a couple of things that are... Um, remember that the devil is presented as a seedy um, kind of character to show us that the devil doesn't have to come with burning clouds and brimstone coming out of the ground 
that he can be mediocre and seedy and deceive us because he seems like nothing. And yet he appeals to everything lowly in us, everything that tends towards mediocrity. Um, <coughs> on page 639, one of, the, one of the wonderful moments in the exchange, remember, the devil keeps making these arguments and Yvonne keeps saying, but those are my own arguments. So you're nothing more than a projection of me. He does that again and again and again. <coughs> That's his tactic. But on one place in 639, um, the devil's been talking about catching rheumatism and going to specialists and taking medicine as if he had a body. And then he says, the devil with rheumatism? Why not if I sometimes become incarnate? Because remember, he keeps imagining. He wants to see himself entering a 250-pound woman where he can really enjoy the flesh. Um, but then he'd be subject to rheumatism. And, and Yvonne's going, a devil with rheumatism? Why not? If I sometimes become incarnate? Once incarnate, I accept the consequences. Satan, sum et nihi humanum, ame alienum puto. I don't know. My land's not there. Yeah, how's that? Satan, sume nihil humanum. Not too bad for the devil. I'm glad I finally pleased you. Because Ivan is praising him. And then the devil says, and you didn't get that. Or Ivan says, and you didn't get that from me. And suddenly stops himself because he realizes if the devil didn't get that from him, then he's not just a projection of him. Okay? Ivan has been getting nervous about this. He goes to a towel and wets it and puts it around his neck as he begins to walk back and forth with the rest of these exchanges. I don't want to go into them all, but towards the end, um, the devil brings up the grant. Now remember, here's where I put it last week, and I want to go back there before I finish reading these passages. A modern psychologist who's a materialist Who's, who's working off of materialist assumptions will not acknowledge spiritual realities, right? He will explain everything in terms of psychology. So for it, Freud, for instance, believed that man, he was a materialist. He didn't believe in God. Um, he denied that man had free will. Man was a product of all of these determinisms, which meant as a scientist, he could predict them. All these things about the human soul. So Freud knew well what today we would call the somatic unconscious, the physical, the bottle, the, the animal's unconscious. But denying God, he would have known nothing of the spiritual unconscious. That was beyond him. He wouldn't know anything about graces. That is, he wouldn't know what most of the poets we've been reading have been showing us. Dante shows us the unconscious everywhere, the, you know, in the inferno and the inferno, all of it. Freud would have known nothing about the spiritual unconscious. What, what Dostoevsky is actually showing us. Is that clear? So, um, a modern psychologist would explain everything in terms of physical or somatic determinisms. Um, when the devil reaches a point of talking about the Grand Inquisitor, which is, it's really interesting. Ivan's poem, we know that. Ivan gets really touchy 
because he's offended and he says don't talk about that don't bring that up so in my 648 I forbid you to speak of the Grand Inquisitor Yvonne exclaimed well and what about the um, geological cataclysm remember that what a poem shut up or I'll kill you kill me no excuse me sir but I will I will have my say I came in order to treat myself to that same pleasure and then he goes on and, and um, Yvonne becomes so enraged at the devil's responses at this point that he says the latter exclaimed, jumping up from the sofa and shaking the spatters of tea off himself. He remembered Luther's inkstand. This is an anecdote about Steve, um, Luther getting so upset at, at what he thought was the devil tempting him that he picked up an ink bottle and threw it at the devil. So he recalls that. He considers me a dream and he throws glasses at a dream. That's the devil's response to Ivan. Just like a woman. I knew you were only pretending to stop your ears and were really listening. And the other, the other thing I want to note here before I get to my question. Remember, when Ivan met with Alyosha to see if he couldn't learn more about Smirjikov, Alyosha said something um, about somebody visiting him. And Ivan's question is, how did you know about him? Because he thought Alyosha was making it clear that he knew about the devil's visits. And when Ivan mentions that to the devil, he says, I got you again. Because at least then when you spoke to Alyosha, you thought I was real. So stop playing around with this. You keep treating me like I'm a figment of your imagination, but I'm real. Okay? Now, is everybody following? Because I'm getting to this question. Ivan picks up a glass, throws it at him. He put a towel, went to get a towel, picked it up, dampened it, and put it around his neck. At this moment, he throws the glass at the devil, and suddenly a knock comes to the door. Alyosha enters and tells him that Shmerdjikov has just killed himself. He looks around the room. There's a glass on the coffee table. It's not been thrown. And he goes to the corner, and there's a towel folded up. So Dostoevsky has set it up so that it seems like this is all a part of a dream. It's not real. Okay? When, in chapter 10, when Alyosha comes in, he tells him all that had happened. Um, um, and it involves things that did not take place in the previous chapter when we were getting the exchange between the devil and Ivan. That, um, that the devil told Ivan that um, he wouldn't go to court and perform a good act because he's, done, he's not virgin. Things like that. So things are reported here in this chapter that were not reported in the previous chapter in the exchanges between the devil and Ivan. Is everybody clear? So the question that I asked last time is, um, is the devil real? Are all these projections of Ivan's imagination when he's going mad, he's He's becoming unglued. He's approaching a nervous breakdown. You know a breakdown in the courtroom. Is, is, are, are all these projections so there is no real evil? This is an evil that Ivan has created in these wild projections. Have I put that baldly enough? Is everybody clear on my question? So, is the devil real? Bob, well, <laughs> you thought you were going to get out of it tonight. 
So what do you all say? Is the devil real or is he a projection? You see there's evidence in the, in the exchange when he said, I, you didn't get that from me. Remember, and he says that in his, the devil says to him in your exchange with Alyosha, and when Alyosha said something about visiting, you believed in me then. So there are these little hints. Dostoevsky has handled this masterfully. Um, and then he gives, we get all this information afterwards about things that we didn't get in the exchange. So what's he doing? How's Dostoevsky, how is he managing this? What are we to take away from this? And we just saw Nefarious. Bob, let's say, I forgot again. What was, you, when you put, because I, I remember you, you, we had just talked about Nefarious and then you read the Yvonne, and your comment about the two of them, which was what? Wait, can you guys hear him? Can you speak up a little bit, sir? Yeah. What? He's dealing with somebody. I mean, it's just like an up and down discussion where he's saying things that sound okay, and then he turns and reverses it. So you don't really know. I mean, half the time you're going, "What did he just say?" Yeah, when he says, you know, the exact opposite of what St. Thomas would say, you know, seeing and believing. No, that's not really what he meant. So he's kind of quoting things, but he's basically taking it for a ride that if I was sitting there trying to listen to him, he would probably confuse the heck out of because I think he knows scripture better than I do. And the devil would. The devil would. Yeah. But I, the way I kind of look at it is... Wait, so the difference between the two, between the scenes of nefarious and the... Just overtly evil, and the other one just kind of leading you down a path that maybe halfway through you figure out you're going down the wrong path. <laughs> or maybe not. Just enough to sort of make Which one is more threatening to you, more dangerous? The second. Yvonne. To Yvonne. Yeah. Yeah. Way more threatening. I mean, neither one is good. But you know where you are in the first one. But you know right. where you are. Yeah. But I, I think, I'm going to write down um, You know, I think the devil goes way beyond in, in this. A belief, no belief in God. I mean, he's basically, as he goes along, he's taking down the world. He wants to take down the world. I don't think that's in Yvonne's head. I think that's a different, whole different level than the atheist said. So, to answer my question, is he real or not? I think he's real. Real. Yeah. How do you explain the glass and the towel? I can't explain the problem. 
but I think it's very real. Yeah. I don't think it's Yvonne thinking. I don't think Yvonne would go to the depth this guy would to turn humanity away from Everybody is following the problem here, right? The difficulty. The, the complexity of it and what Dostoevsky is doing to make it harder. Everybody's following that, right? So go ahead, sides, sorry. Huh? Right? It's like that he's presenting both sides, sort of what you said before. He's so honest, Dostoevsky. So he's undermining sort of materialistic views by making you wonder, but at the same time, reinforcing it because the material plane has not changed. It's all happened in the spiritual plane. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Is he real? Is he real or not? Is, this a, is he real okay, or a figment? So because I'm a Christian, yes, I think that this is absolutely... <laughs> Stop being a Christian for just a moment. Read this objectively. Whatever. Don't bring any of your prejudices in here. Answer the question. <laughs> this is a courtroom. You're on trial right now. literature, though... Why are, my question is, why are we asking this question? Do we have to know whether it's real or not, or should we live in the mystery exactly the way we do in life? Is he just... So reason's done away. So reason can't help us here at all. We're just supposed to... Well, oh. if it's according to reason, I went by Alyosha and his response to Ivan, because he's the character I trust. Who? Alyosha. Oh, I, yeah. Sorry. Sorry, no go. I'm a Russian major. No, I yeah. Say it. <laughs> 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 what to do with you guys? What? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, wait. Let her finish and then quit. He was trained in a monastery. If anyone acknowledges a spiritual battle, it should be him. But he was. But we're not dealing with Alyosha. Here. We're dealing right, with Ivan. His response to Ivan's. When Ivan said uh, he, he's talking to the devil, he saw Satan, all this stuff, his response was more concerned for his physical and mental health and not a spiritual battle. Which is a denial of it then. Which was interesting to me. Yeah. So that goes against what you're saying, no? It is. Yeah. I mean, that's why his response surprised me, because I thought his response would match mine. As a Which means you have some changes to make. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So I'm very confused and... I, I'm uncomfortable in the mystery. I, I'm okay not knowing exactly what it is. It's both and. The, yeah, the terms for that are Alenkus and Aporia. Both and. <laughs> Come on. Oh, you. I think he's not real. I think it's an extension of what I remember in Mr. Yasky and Brian. Punishment is the guilt. It's the guilt that kills coming out from inside. It's the turn. It's the turn. It's the After his altercations so evil is not real demons are not real they're just projections of our imagination
Mike, I know you, I, th I thought you had something. I want to be the first to answer because I haven't read it yet. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I think my answer is, does it matter whether he's real or if he's in his head? To matter whether God is real or not? I was searching for a quote and the quote is, just because it's in your head doesn't mean it's not real. And I thought that was C.S. Lewis, but it turns out it's J.K. Rowling from a Harry Potter movie. <laughs> 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 By the way, Harry Potter is not on my reading list. Just so does the devil tempt me through my own thoughts? I think he does. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. And uh, so if it was in, I think, uh, if, if the glass and the towel had been where they were on the table from the moment Yvonne walked into the mm -hmm. room until she got there. Right. Okay, that's fine. If he, then, then it was in Yvonne's head, but it doesn't mean that the devil wasn't acting on it. Yeah. See, that's where I want to go, because it's a, it, to me it's a, t just, just a, Chuck, did you have something? Not unless you want me to. No, it's, well, it's up to you. <laughs> Because you were jumping a minute ago, you were. Oh, you were you were jumping when she. I know. At the risk of being flipped, Yvonne's not real either. It's a novel. Say it again. At the risk of being flipped, Yvonne is not real either. It's a novel. And, and I think Dostoevsky just wants to leave it ambiguously vague. It wants to leave it that way. And the towel and the glass. Well, the devil can show up and visit Yvonne. The devil could reposition the towel and the glass. I suppose. Yeah, and it's yeah. possible. Let me throw it. Let me throw in something here. Just it, it does matter whether it's real or not. Even if this is fiction, because presumably their writers are as great as they are because they're revealing something here. Let me just put this this thought out for some. One of a friend of mine, friend of ours, a relative of um, Suzanne's. Um, his wife is in in a care facility and we were talking with him last night and he was talking about quarreling with spiritualists, some transcendentalists and I don't remember and I was just sort of warning him and reminding him of things he knew but it, you know that's the form of conversation takes. That one of the dangers of a transcendentalist position is its denial of the body, reality of the body. And one of the, I, I just wanted him to remind, you know, to take that because a transcendentalist who lives in this ethereal spiritual world often does it at the expense of the body. And, and I would say the intellectuals of the modern world, Ivan among them, um, are given to that tendency. The, the price of, on that, the cost of that on the human body is awful. Um, theology of the body didn't come out of nowhere. I think it's one of the most important books of the 20th century because in it the church is here, let me put it differently. They, that book would not have had the importance that it had, except that from both sides, the um, secularists and the Puritans were doing everything they could to demean the human body. One of the points that I made when we were doing Dante, I, I mean, I was so inspired by it when we were going up the Paradiso. You can't read the Paradiso, as, as intellectually as hard as it is, you cannot read the Paradiso well watching Dante traverse the heavens going through the moon and into the sun. You know, he, remember the opening words, he was transhumanized. It's an experience of grace. Picture somebody going to, dying, and going to purgatory. I mean, how do we imagine that condition where somebody's working off sins, I mean, that's our faith, and still in the body while it's dying and, you know. One of the beauties of the Paradiso is that 
the, what Dante's doing is reminding us of the glory of the human body. And if anybody had a doubt about it before Christ, they could not have a doubt about it afterwards. For God to take on our body and die in it for us, it, it's not the angels, the question of the angels decided. We knew that from Dante. Satan chose, he wasn't tempted. Eve was tempted. Mankind has extenuating circumstances the angels never had. The angels decided, they chose. That's why they're either with God or in hell. Human beings are in a difficult spot. For God to take on our human body, show me a philosophy in the modern world that does any justice to how extraordinary our, our human nature is. Look around at creation. Darwin's not going to get, Freud isn't going to get to it. Marx isn't going to get to it. Marx's an idealist, he's in his head. Everything, every, every, when we read John Paul's Fide Ratio, every ideology, every ideology that he identified has as its aim taking away our human nature. What was the battle of the Iliad fought over? If you remember, the, for those of you who weren't there, it was about honor. Remember the honor of a man and everybody, the more booty you have, the more worth you have as a human being? And Achilles comes to that point where... <laughs> Agamemnon officers, all that, tons, I'm not kidding, it's not exaggerated, cities, women, gold, to come back into the war. All that. Um, and Achilles says, such honor is a thing I need not. I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. The gods honor men. There's a transcendent honor, a dignity, a dignity to the human person. Abortion? That protects that dignity? Everything in the modern world threatens our human nature. Indirectly, every, everything that's going on to change our human nature is to do away with Christ. Do away with human nature, where's Christ? Get rid of it. The one reason he came was to... The, the whole battle of the Iliad is about our human nature. Whether honors conferred or there's something inherently dignity, some inherent dignity in man. The answer in the Iliad is there's this inherent dignity in man. Homer's final on it. So, just to, you know, to this question about is it physically or real, it's, it's really important to be careful here because if we start denying physical reality indirectly, we could be denying the incarnation. So I'm, I'm a strict materialist in one sense here. That glass and towel are on the table. They matter. They raise a they should raise a question for us. Is was the dream real? And just so you know, because I don't want to, I can't come down on the black and white for all the reasons you've given me. I think Dostoevsky is masterful. The question that it raises for me is not whether the dream or, I, I take the dream real, it could be a, you know, the projection. But the, I'm not as sure, I'd like to hear from Suzanne on this, because she may disagree with me on this. The, the towel and glass are evidence that this is a projection. But there are indications, I've read them, in the dream itself or in that exchange that make us wonder whether it's real or not. And then everything Alyosha says afterwards makes us wonder. So Dostoevsky's being, being as masterful as he can be. The question that I have, and I can't answer it, is the devil subtle enough to do something in the dream concerning a glass and a towel so that when we come to the glass and towel at the end, we deny the dream and say, it's all false, there's no devil. I mean, how subtle can the devil be? I can't answer it. 
but I know, I know how subtle Dostoevsky is, and his subtlety scares me. Anyway, I think, I think it's a difficult question, but I think it's a very real one. Either we end up denying devils or we deny materiality. And in either case, we may be subtly undermining the Incarnation. Because the great mystery of the Incarnation is bringing divinity into our human, fleshing it, giving it flesh. That God would have been willing to take on our flesh. That's how, that's how wonderful matter is. That God thought enough of it to... I have to somebody, go back. Yeah. Somebody took that away from him, basically, the gentleman of the devil yeah. was inside of him, took it away. So it's the same thing here. Why did that glass not have... Hey, my answer to that, Bob, and it's, I mean, it's just, I'm, I'm trying to protect a mystery here and a reality. I mean, something we have to come to terms with is that um, physical nature has laws that I don't think God abrogates. He doesn't, he doesn't violate his own laws so that the laws of nature have to be protected in any sound. That doesn't do away with miracles, because if you look at miracles, most of them work in accord with nature. All of, the, all of Christ's miracles took something that was keeping nature from performing its task, blindness, you know, diseases. He would take those away so that what God made by nature was restored. So there's, it, it, it's a difficult, difficult situation. Um, but I, I, you know, God doesn't just do away with nature's laws. He works with them. That's his own creation. Uh, and Christ himself said, I came to fulfill the law. I mean, there are laws to things, our own nature, the nature itself. He had to die. He, he couldn't fool around with that. He couldn't make it something other than death to get around it. We, we, we have to do both things with Christianity. We have to acknowledge the divinity involved in it, and also the corporality, the materiality of things. Go ahead. <laughs> I don't know, I thought better of it. I was going to say that in some miracles, I think nature is suspended, interrupted, changed, glorified, perhaps? How do you explain walking on water? How do you explain the miraculous, um, the multiplication of the loaves and fishes? How do you explain the dancing of the sun of Fatima, right? Those are different. Yeah, and it's, yeah, I mean, I agree with all of that. I mean, part of my answer to that is Christ could perform the miracles he did because he created nature. Right, and the devil cannot. Let me finish, hold on, just, yeah, and the devil, right, the devil can do everything he can to destroy it. That's, he sets out to. Because there are no laws for him. He, if there are, he wants to violate them. But Christ was the master. So it's no surprise, for me, there's no surprise for me that he could have healed the blind, that he could have cured the, the you know the, the 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 lame the hand, the leprosy, or or that he could have walked on water. None of that for me surprises me. He masters nature. It, the irony for Christ is because he's God, he he created it. He's the master of it. He could, 
but he also submit, submitted himself to it, so he died. And he, you have to keep that there because of the way you do away with his death, you know, and his resurrection, which in all, in all respects seems to deny nature, although it doesn't because everywhere in nature there are signs of resurrection. Winter comes, spring comes, you know. The resurrection is implied even in nature. Um, so Christianity really does take us to the depths of this intersection, or whatever you want to call it, between two worlds, two orders. The, the divinity of Christ and his humanity, that he so fully accepted our human nature. I've got to call this to an end. Any last comments on whether this demon is real or not? Anybody who might have been looking at that would maybe not see the devil because he was there for Jesus, not for me or for anybody else who was looking. And that's the same way I feel about this devil. He was there for Ivan, not for Elosha or anybody else. Um, Although he leaves, it, well, I mean, we it's, it's, so what we make of this dream again, in the dream it says he leaves when, you know, when the door, when we're not. And the second thing is about the glass and the towel, to me the devil breeds confusion is one of them. <laughs> yes. So we see that make doubt, confusion, did this really happen? To me that's what he wants to breathe. So yep. that could happen. Let's go to the end. If we and he was, he did know that Zmernikov had committed suicide, and that is not something that his conscience would. No, right, yeah, yeah. To just here, I'm gonna, I'm trying to do as much credit as I can to Dostoevsky because he's so extraordinary. There's one sense in which Ivan could have known that, although I don't want to take that away because that's that's one of the facts that occurs outside that dream sequence. That's after. And we don't get that in the dream. And, I, and I, I, don't, I don't want to take away any of value except to remind everybody, when Ivan said goodbye to the devil the last time, the devil's response to him was farewell. And I, you know, I look at that sequence, sorry, Smirjikov. Um, Smirjikov, um, you know, I, how much is going on in Ivan's head during that period because he's learning to rethink and see things that he realized he hadn't seen before. But anyway, I just think it's interesting. There's something final about that. And did, I, did Ivan draw the appropriate conclusions? We don't know. Dostoevsky's handling of this is so subtle, just amazingly subtle. Here, I want to take a look at the very end. Um, I'm going to just summarize the courtroom scenes as quickly as I can. Um, wow, we're good. We may get out early tonight. <laughs> Mary, what did you say about the devil breeding skepticism and doubt? And what was that comment you made? <laughs> or, or realism? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> oh God, am I ever not? Um, well, I didn't see the movie you were talking about, but um, I think there was one, um, The Pope's Exorcist. 
Uh, do you see that one? Yet? Mm -mm. Maybe no. You see that one? That one's definitely the right? So when you talk about the water and the. Yeah. Um, but that's Hollywood. Yeah, yeah when Hollywood, God, I just. Yeah, the church does not really do Remember one of the one of the great themes that came out of um, Dostoevsky is the influence of reading and media. Remember everybody's Ivan's. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't stop Ivan's essay in the very beginning. The reading, Kolya reads well. I'm going to come to that. Here. But how much um, flawed? I don't want to use the word fake. How much flawed information comes through media, re books, television, movies? How much the media exploits for money and gain and you know stuff like that, and the influence. Um, I was reading something on Francis today by um, National Public Radio. I think it was that I'm, I'm not fond of because it's to me it's a little bit too liberal. But but you know if you you can pick up an article from one side of the political spectrum on Francis and get something from the other side on the same thing, get two very different slanted readings. Um, it, it's so important to be a little bit skeptical <laughs> about the reading that we do. Christ himself said, be on guard. Be, on, be as wise as the certain serpent. Be on guard. Be on guard. Here, I want to go to the end quickly. Very quickly. Um, the prosecuting attorney um, um, Kirillovich calls almost everybody that was involved with Dmitry during this run when he went to that inn and then was um, arrested. Grigory Rakitin, captain, the innkeeper, the Poles, the professional doctors, Alyosha, Katrina, and even Ivan. He, he calls them all. I'm, I'm going to ruthlessly summarize this. And I, you can disagree. My evaluation of the, of the prosecuting attorney, he's fairly rational. He does a decent job. He, he, he puts all of his, most of the emphasis on the money issue. The fact that he spent all this money seems to be evidence that um, Dimitri um, killed his father and took the money. Because that's a big piece of evidence. Now hold on here, because this is, this is the crucial, I think, I hope I'm not misreading here. I think this is the crucial thing about the trial. You've got two lawyers who are both well-trained lawyers. That is, they've been trained to use their powers of reason to work from facts to conclusions. It's, it's the mind moving logically from evidence, certain facts, and drawing conclusions from them, right? And the question is, are those conclusions valid? Do they? Are they in support of the evidence? Does the evidence support those conclusions? Yes? So what's at issue in this trial is reason. How well do these men reason from evidence to facts? So the argument that the prosecuting attorney makes is fairly convincing. There's all this evidence showing if, um, Dimitri had all of this money. Where did he get it? Is everybody okay? He, he, he deals with Smirjikov in a, in a dismissive way. He says he's cowardly and greedy and, you know, the thought that some people put forward that he's the killer is ridiculous, so he dismisses him. Um, the defense attorney, uh, Fetyukovich, um, takes on every one of those um, witnesses and discredits them. 
Um, Alyosha helps because remember he says that when Dmitri hit his chest it was he suddenly realized that there was probably an amulet there containing money so that that's not a motive. Um, when Ivan comes in he's almost incoherent and says that Smirjikov committed the murder and he and he brings to the um, court's attention the devil and it's at that point because people don't believe in devils that they think he's going mad. Katrina um, supported um, Alyosha or Dmitri in the beginning but once Ivan implicates himself she reverses her position shows the letter from Dmitri saying that he planned to kill so she turns on him she's trying to save Ivan so that's half of what unfolds when uh, Fedyukovich comes forward he he throws um, a questioning light on every one of the witnesses and um, says at the end that Smirjikov um, was actually cunning and clever and envious and he had all the motives that he needed to kill the man. As a matter of fact, he sees a correspondence between the prosecuting attorney's line of um, argument and something that Smirjikov says. So he makes the arguments that Smirjikov had at actually planted that idea in the attorney's head. So that he was manipulating people and he in fact used the envelope to frame Alia, or, uh, Dimitri. So, and it's really interesting because his evidence, as a matter of fact, is more convincing rationally if you look at it. He's got a much more accurate picture of Smirchikov. The problem is when he's done giving all this evidence masterfully, he says, but if he's guilty, we should let him go. Our response should be mercy. So he takes this whole rational argument and then undoes it. Now here's my question quickly because I want to get to the very end. What's Dostoevsky doing with this trial? What's its importance for the whole of Brothers Karamazov? Trial, in one sense, is one of the best pieces of evidence of how lawful and rational a people is. Because all laws are a product of reason. So, the human trial, and, and yeah, I mean, it's, Chester has a wonderful essay on it by 12 chosen men. You know, that we would take 12 men out of anywhere and, and give them the responsibility of deciding a man's life is probably one of the greatest gifts to mankind because we're putting it in the, in the lives of ordinary men. Take 12 educated men <laughs> and you'll get, uh, you won't get, the, the likelihood of getting justice reduces. What's Dostoevsky doing with this trial at the end? Because you know that after, after the um, attorneys give their closing remarks, the, ju the jury um, adjourns, it comes back one hour later. Everybody thinks Dmitri is going to be let off. The jury comes back and says guilty. So the epilogue begins with our learning that Katrina Krushenka have all begun to make plans for Dmitri's escape. He and Grushenka will go to America and come back and um, I want to I want to wait on that for a second but before we get there um, what's how do we look at this trial in the in the context of the whole of Brothers Karamazov and if I can put it more broadly a little hopefully to deepen the context here the whole second half of Brothers Karamazov almost the whole second half deals with Dmitri and, and his ordeal 
almost the whole second half. His going off, the Bacchanal with Grushenka, everything that happens there, the, the um, preliminary interrogations, and then this long trial. And it's during this period that Lisi goes mad. She slams her, she, she wants to um, call off the engagement with Alyosha. Um, she's tormented, she gives, she's, she's losing her mind herself, she's going mad. She slams her finger to the door. Ivan goes mad. It's a dark, it's a dark second half. Um, a man is gonna be convicted of a crime he's not committed which is a darkness in himself. Dostoevsky's looking at it positively because in one sense that trial, the outcome of that trial, confirms Zosima's words. Zosima said, a law, the justice system, can never help a man convert. Can never help a man convert. Put a man in jail, you're not helping him. Unless something comes in to change the conscience, the private conscience of a man, a man will not be, that's Zosima's argument. Um, Dimitri is um, accused, he's not guilty, and he says, it's only when he does that, he says, but I'm the most guilty man alive, I've committed all these crimes. So he's willing to suffer for all men. He's just living up to Zosima's premise. And it's during this time when he's suffering an undeserved punishment, that he undergoes his conversion. He identifies with all men, he's, he's less ready to do whatever he wants to do. He's ready to change his life. So what's Dostoevsky doing with this trial? It's the climax of the whole ending. And lots of critics say anticlimactic. It's ridiculous. How are we to look at this trial that takes up so much of the, that leads us to the end of the book? The condemnation of a man sentenced to prison for a crime he didn't commit major, a major part of the action leads to that. He's, he's not freed, he's not let go. He's gonna be condemned, he's gonna be punished, and he has to flee. Let's be clear, let's be really clear, Christ did say that, but what he said was um, if, if you carry an impulse to murder or anger, you've already committed it, or imagine committing a sex act with a woman, you've already committed it. Um, so Christ's concern is for the interior, not outward appearances. He, so he's really questioning the whole emphasis that the Jews give to the law. Um, that that you can overdo it. But Christ said himself, I came to fulfill the law. So he's not underdoing the law. The issue in the last part of this has to do with the judicial system, justice, whether justice was done. And in terms of justice, we're seeing a failed judicial system, at least in this instance, because he's being convicted for a crime he didn't commit. We all know everything he's guilty of, and it seems to me Dostoevsky manages it, so we, we, our hearts go out to him. If we don't, I think there's something wrong with us. 
We're meant to feel Zosima's words. We, we've, got to, we've got to learn to stop being so judgmental, condemning people. Oh, by, by the way, I just hear, here's a, this is going to tell on me, but I hope you'll enjoy this. I, I used to play tennis a lot and coach tennis and played, played A class sometimes. So it was a serious, when I couldn't play basketball anymore and I, I took up tennis and had help from a state champion and I loved it and played it and taught it. And so I occasionally watch it and the US Open just took place for any of you who follow you know, golf or tennis. And, and there was a young woman in it who, whose pride has really bothered me. And, and I, I was choosing for the other woman. And the, the young girl who won it is American and black and a young up-and-coming star. But I've been really bothered by a pride and I wanted the other woman to read, or to win. And, and I didn't watch it. A day later I came back to see who won and it turned out that the young girl did, even though she lost the first set. And when I saw it, when I turned it off after the first set, the other woman, like she was in charge, I thought she was gonna win it, it would be a blowout. But the young girl came back and won it. And I wasn't happy, I was sorry. The next day, it shows a picture of this young girl, this young black girl, kneeling on the court with her hands and head on the bench. And here, all the news media, all the news media got it wrong. They misinterpreted the, the, the picture that was there, and the coach straightened it out and said, she's praying because she takes her faith so seriously. Talk about embarrassing convictions of your own judgments. Anyway, I, I was so glad for the put down. How many times do you see a, a professional athlete in our world kneeling on the playing field and praying? I was stunned. 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 And ashamed. <laughs> anyway, sir. Sorry? Say it again. Oh, in the beginning, yeah. Yeah, and they get taken to court for it. No, kneeling and praying. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm just saying, but I know of instances where coaches have been fired, yeah. you know, and kids just, God. Sorry, where were we? I'm sorry. Trial. Oh, trial. Where? Yeah, what's just if, sorry. Well, Dimitri wasn't converted because he was going to flee to America. I have a problem with that. Do you? Yeah. I have a problem with all of that flying to America. Yeah. I do too, actually, but I, don't I know what to think about. Yeah, yeah. But oh, I know she was here to be easy. I mean, fleeing to America wasn't going to be easy. You're going to be an immigrant. You're not going to know the language. You're not going to have money. It wasn't going to be. Easy. He didn't want to go there. They were going to come back yeah. to work the land. Yeah. He was dreading it. He was it. I think Dostoevsky, if you compare this to crime and punishment, Raskolnikov went to. Siberia, the labor camp, because he had actually committed the murder. Yeah. But here, Dmitri had not actually committed the murder. Dostoevsky showed him mercy, and Alyosha even said, "This cross is too heavy for you to yeah, bear." Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I yeah. think that was a window into what he. Yeah, did. yeah, yeah. But the trial, um, to go back to your question, is um, the prosecution um, did not enact justice because they were based on on evidence alone, just evidence. Mm. It was the defense attorney that got it all right. 
and he even advocated mercy, and he even advocated faith and reason together in his speech about fatherhood, which I found fascinating and made a note right here. It reminded me of Fides Aratio, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, the jury went with the, what the prosecution had said. Yeah. Yeah, to go, I want to go back to your point because it's a good point. And I forgot to do this in my summary. It was too brief. Remember when they called the professional doctors, all of whom have training in psychology, so they would have had the last word on psychological motives. If anybody knew them, they should have known them. Do you remember what the doctors did? <laughs> Just, it's a, it's a travel. It's a. Remember, I, I've talked about it, that. There's a real satiric element, manipulation satire. There's a real satiric element running through the brothers. It just so reminds me of Dickens, but here it's deeper because it's spiritual. But the, um, how did it go? The, if I've got the, uh, one doctor said um, when he came, when Dimitri came in, um, how did it? Which way he would be? He looked yeah, straight ahead. He, one, the first doctor said something about, if he turned his, he should have looked straight ahead, but he didn't, and that was an indication of, one thing. The second doctor came in and said that he should have looked at the judge or the jury because the hands of his, the outcome was in their hands. The third doctor says something entirely different. Each one of them gives a psychological motive and they're ridiculous. They're going to, on, on the basis of how a man stares, because remember, we're in a materialistic world, there are all these determinisms, you can predict these things. If you've got this evidence, this is the only conclusion, and yet they contradict each other. So Dostoevsky's at his height, I thought, with those three doctors, because they, they, they couldn't have been more ridiculous, and they were an indication of, of the, uh, the status of psychology, that it could open up the human soul and show the guilt or innocence of a man. And none of them agreed. They, they contradicted each other. So, so there was evidence, but what you do with that evidence is here. What you do with that evidence always depends on your premises. Whatever your premise is when you begin, it's the, the, the conclusion is already implied in it. Each of them began with a different premise and each of them came out with a different conclusion. Um, any last remarks on the, on the trial before we... Very quick. It's ironic that Dostoevsky satirizes psychology because he's known as like the greatest... Right author of psychological Right, novels. right. Yeah, Freud loved him. Freud said that Brothers Karamazov was the greatest book ever written. Um, and, it, and I should, I better not. My wife is shaking her. That means, go ahead. <laughs> so, 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 so much for psychology. Chuck, go ahead. I don't think we can let the trial go without Marking what to me was one of the striking things about it at the very end. When one man walking out of the court remarks to the other about why the verdict went the way it did. Why did it go the way it did? It wasn't because of the prosecutor. It wasn't because the defense attorney was weak or, or made that last admission towards the guilt of mercy that's conditional. Yeah. It was because the peasants didn't like Dimitri. Right. He, it was a, it was a farce. It's almost comedic. Yeah. Satiric. It really is. Here, let me put this question here because it's, it's you know, it's my under... In fact, let me, let, let me make it as... I want to get to the ending. It seems to me through the whole of this book that um, one of the things that we... I've said it before, but I hope it has more evidence. Right now. 
Um, one of the things that we discover in reading Dostoevsky is how distrustful he was of reason. Every time we get a story on the part of somebody concerning something else, almost invariably they get it wrong. The Stranger is one of the best examples. I, I, I don't think it's an accident that he has the importance. It's Dostoevsky's way of showing, once again, justice is not done because people so badly misread the human soul. So Asimov's point is, is any justice system capable of reading the human soul? What do we do with questions of justice? Because justice so often turns out to be short of real justice. And yet we need a justice system. Because if we take, that's why I said, started out by saying, every trial illustrates the importance of law for a country. It can either demonstrate it or show how, how lawless a people have become. So the outcomes of trials are a clue to something. And the importance of it can be greater here. The whole end of the book goes towards a trial. If we look at everything that takes place, all the evidence in the interrogations, in the um, story concerning the stranger, remember he killed that woman, and then he gave the evidence so nobody would believe him, even when they had evidence, and, which is irrefutable evidence, and then the trial itself. Neither of the attorneys, I think, get it right. They get close to it, but fail in some way. The outcome of the jury gets it wrong. All the people get it wrong. Dostoevsky could not be clear of his distrust of reason. And I want to try to, I want to, I'm going to make a summary remark here to try to wind all of this up, but, but I want to look at the ending. But I want to just say this in defense of him, because one of the differences between West and East has always been the West has had a strong, realist, philosophic tradition that's filtered down into our manners, our codes of manners with each other. The courtesy with which we treat each other or not tends to be more reasonable. The lovers in Dostoevsky are left in their passions. The whole world is left in its passions underneath a, a socialistic regime now. Dostoevsky is, does not trust reason. What he's showing is that it can't be trusted, and I think there's reason for it. Because if you look at all the Enlightenment ideas coming from Europe, that, that are presumably are based on reason, they're all wrong. They're destroying Russia. They're destroying Christianity. I hope that's clear. I want to be emphatic about that because I think this is an extraordinary novel. But at its root is this, their profound distrust of reason. Will you find that in Shakespeare and Dante? Absolutely not. Dante and, and um, Shakespeare, Boethius, Augustine, St. Thomas, Take a look at Augustine, Boethius, whom we've read, St. Thomas, are all affirming reason and the importance of reason for the way we love. Because if we don't see things rightly, it's harder for us to love well. The better we see things, the more capable we become of loving the way we should. So in Dostoevsky, you've got this profound distrust of reason, okay? Now I want to just leave it at that, because I want to... I want to um, get to the end. All these plans are made for the escape. Um, um, Katrina goes to visit Dimitri in the prison and asks for forgiveness for what she did in turning on him in the trial. He forgives her. Grushenka comes and um, Katrina asks for her forgiveness and Grushenka refuses. Dimitri gets really sharp with Grushenka and, and um, Alyosha says you shouldn't have done that. I'm 
I question that, but um, I want to turn to the very end. You know that the little boy, Ilyusha, dies, and it ends with his funeral, and um, after the funeral, all of the boys go to this stone where, remember, Ilyusha used to walk with his father, and I'm going to ask Suzanne to comment on this for a minute, but um, at the very end, there's a exchange between Kolya and this other boy, Kartashev, um, talking about Troy and history, and Kolya has something sharp to say about him. Let me, let me, if I can just flush this out for a second. Earlier in the story, Kolya speaks sharply to this young boy because you know Kolya goes around pretending to be smarter than everybody else, and he is. He's really well read in history. So one of the things that makes him smart is his reading. He's been reading since he was a little kid, he loves. But he partly does it in vanity. He wants to be smarter than other people. That's the reason he reads so much. And this young kid discovers this history book on a table and turns the page and learns that there's something in there about Troy, which Kolya had prided himself on knowing. Now, when he went around priding himself on Troy, he didn't go around saying, I learned it from a history book. He goes around to show he's smarter than everybody else. Suddenly this kid learns that it's in a history book and he makes that known. Well, imagine Kolya's response out of pride and envy that this kid's gonna expose him. So he tells the kid um, something, I don't wanna hear your opinion. You don't even exist in my mind. I don't care if you, you know, he, it's really a sharp rebuke. And there's that discomfort, and the other boy tends to blush because Kolya's taken him up several times, okay? So at the very end, um, when the boys are gathering at the stone, Alyosha has this speech. And he says that, um, this is the very end, two pages in from the end, um, and yet, no matter how wicked we may be, and God preserve us from it, as soon as we remember how we buried Elusha, how we loved him in the last days, and how we've been talking just now, so much as friends, so together by this stone, the most cruel and jeering man among us, if we should become so, will still not dare laugh within himself at how kind and good he was at this present moment. Moreover, perhaps just this memory alone will keep him from great evil. And he will think better of it and say, yet I was kind, brave, and honest then. Let him laugh to himself, it's no matter. A man often laughs at what is kind and good. It just comes from thoughtlessness. But I assure you, gentlemen, that as soon as he laughs, he will say it once in his heart. You know, it's a bad thing for me to laugh, because one should not laugh at that. It will certainly be so, Karamazov, Kolya says, the boys were stirring. I'm speaking about the worst case if we become bad, Alyosha went on. But why should we become bad, gentlemen? Isn't that true? Let us first of all and before all be kind, then honest, and then let us never forget one another. I say again, I give you my word, gentlemen, that for my part I will never forget any one of you. Each face that's looking at me now, at this moment, I will remember be it even 30 years later, Kolya said to Kashav, Kardashev, <coughs> just now that we supposedly do not dare to know his existence, because 
Koya said, I don't care if you exist or not. He just blew him off. It was a humiliating thing to say. Um, but even if 30 years, Kolya said to um, Kartoskov just now that we supposedly do not care to know of his existence. But how can I forget that Kartashov exists and that he's no longer blushing? Now is when he discovered Troy, but is looking at myth with his nice, kind, happy eyes. Gentlemen, my dear gentlemen, let us all be as generous and brave as Ilyushenko, as intelligent, brave, generous as Kolya, who will be much more intelligent when he grows up a little. And let us be as bashful but smart and nice as Kartashov. But why am I talking about this too? When he goes on, you're all dear to me. The boys cry out response to him. We will, you know, we will not forget, we will not forget um, how I loved him, exclaims Kolya of the young boy. Our children, our dear friends, do not be afraid of life. How good life is when you do something good and rightful. Yes, yes, the boys said ecstatically. Karamazov, we love you, another one says. Hurrah for Karamazov, Kolya proclaimed. And memory eternal for the dead boy. Alyosha added, go down, well now and let's end our speeches and go to memorial dinner. Don't be disturbed that we'll be eating pancakes because the boys had made a point. How can you leave a sad funeral and go eat? It seems so incongruous, they don't belong together. And he's saying, let's go eat. The funeral's here, it's time for joy. Don't be disturbed that we'll be eating pancakes. It's an ancient, eternal thing, and there's good in that too, laughed Alyosha. Well, let's go, and we go like this now, hand in hand, and eternally so, all our lives, hand in hand. Hurrah for Karamazov! Koya cried once more ecstatically, and once more all the boys joined in his exclamation. Okay, what do we make of this ending? Lori, you make it. What's your response to the ending? Come on, you've got it on your, I mean, you're, <laughs> no? I can tell Lori loves it, I think. Yeah, what about the generation? What can you say about it? Yeah. Doc, you want to have your thoughts on what's the what's the difference between Alyosha and Koya? Suzanne said this when we were home because we were talking about it at dinner. She said she was really pleased to see the way Alyosha, um, how'd you, what's that phrase? It wasn't put him in his place, but took him up. Huh? It took him up um, as kindly as he did. You know, because Kolya was not kind to that boy. In fact, it was really cruel. And Alyosha doesn't dwell on it. He just takes him up on it and says, not that, and he goes on. So there's a real kindness in the way that he corrects people. 
And it seems to me that's really pointed here, that, that that's not an accident here at the end. We've got, it, the, the last scene is a sign of the future, of a promise to come, and the two leaders of that future are Alyosha and Kolya. So it's a really important question for me how we look at this ending, particularly in the relationship between those two boys. Let me try to put this in perspective. Sasimov said to Alyosha, leave. This is not your calling, get out. Um, and he did it in a way to make it clear that he couldn't stay with his family. And you know that at important times he's not there with his family, he's with Dmitri, he's off with the, with the boy. Um, so Zosima was encouraging him to put, not to never to stop loving his family, but he had a work in the world to do. And he said, it's not here at the monastery, you leave. Three days later, Alyosha went out, kissed the ground, said goodbye to the monastery. So we're meant to see, correct me if any, we're meant to see that Alyosha is like a, um, a worldly um, representation of a spiritual calling, a religious calling. He's not to be in the monastery. He's not going to be a priest or a monk. He's going to go out. But he's going to take Zosimum and Christ with him. So Alyosha is an image of somebody who has carries Zosimum in and who's going to go into the world to carry on that work, whatever he took from Zosimum and Christ. Kolya has made it very clear he does not believe in Christ's divinity. He's um, a, a die-hard socialist. He makes it seem as if he'll never give that up, even though Alyosha says 10 years down the line he hopes he'll be you know, better than he is now because he's got some growing up to do. Kolya's a humanist. If I can sort of allegorize this, I'm uncomfortable with this, but Alyosha's a religious figure going into the secular world to do his work. Kolya belongs to that world. He doesn't associate, he wasn't raised by Zosimum. But he, he's got this wonderful heart. Um, he wants to do good, he loves bravery. He, he comes to the defense of the boy, Elusha, when they attack him because he sees how brave he is. So he loves his courage, he stands behind him, they have a fight together, he gets wounded, he forgives him. So there's a lot of good in him, but he's motivated by pride and envy deeply. He wants to show how much smarter than he is. So you've got Alyosha who's sort of steeped in a tradi uh, Christian tradition, and a boy who's humanist. He's like a young Ivan, but he doesn't have the bad background that Ivan carries. He loves the intellect, he loves the mind, he loves being smart, he wants to read. And our hope for the future is pinned on these two boys and their influence on the rest of these boys as they go out into the world. So how are we to look at that, is my... Yeah, can I push back on Kolya just... Of course, sure. Okay. Reading this novel, it seemed like Karamazovs are um, a symbol for all of humanity, right? Dimitri is the violent physical side, Ivan the intellectual angelic side, and Alyosha the spiritual emotional. Kolya, to me, seems to be all three together, an integration of all three, his violent, impulsive side needs to be quelled, his intellectual, prideful side also needs quelling, but he does have a good heart, so he resembles all three Karamazov brothers to me. 
And I think with Alyosha's guidance, he's sort of like forming and shaping and molding the future of Russia. <laughs> that wasn't grand enough. <laughs> Here, here let, me, let me just add a note on that. One of the wonderful things about the end that I think we're not supposed to miss is that in some ways the Karamazov, I don't know about, in some ways all humanity, but certainly Russia. And remember that in the beginning, the Karamazovs have a bad name. They're associated with brutality. The prosecuting attorney's per, whole purpose in life is to get rid of this clan. Because he said, my aim in life is, to, this is to pray family, what they've done is bad because this is a progressive idea. So they're looking at the Karamazovs as a family to get rid of. So his whole purpose is to win this case and, um, and convict Demetria. The last words were, hurrah for Karamazov, hurrah for Karamazov. We read the, we read the Aeschylus trilogy, the, the curse on the house of, um, oh God, God, my mind. The curse on the house of, Eight, is Atreus? God, my mind. Say it again, Chuck. Atreus. Is it? Yeah, 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 yes. Thanks. Thank you again. Keep bailing me out. Um, Curse on the House of Atreus. Yeah? And it's lifted at the end in that trilogy. But um, Orestia has to go, Orestes has to go through, undergo this awful ordeal of dealing with the, the, um, the fates, the, the, God, the furies the dark forces, the chthonic earth forces. And what we're watching in the, this, uh, what we're experiencing in this book is everything about the Karamazas is being taken through that dark underline of um, these dark forces, um, like the Furies. And, and at the end, the, the house is redeemed. So it's like playing on the house, the house of Atreus curse. The curse over the Karamazov house is lifted that um, Dimitri suffered, the father's dead, that old way has gone, Alyosha's going to the world, Ivan's going to have to deal with an intellectual madness. I don't, I don't quite look at Kolya, you know, the, um, the way you're presenting him. I tend to see him as focused more on the intellect. If you take the platonic image of the soul, remember reason, spiritedness, anger, or thumus, and the appetites, um, you can apply each one of those to each one of the Karamazov sons. But one of the differences between that and uh, what Dostoevsky is doing, and he knew Plato well, um, is that he would have associated the intellect, he would have understood, claimed, that the intellect needed piety, because without piety, the intellect would go bad. And I think Kolya's tempted to that in his pride. He's just too, too proud. Clearly Alyosha's, I mean, Kolya's made it clear. He loves Alyosha dearly. And he says of him at one point in the novel, Alyosha's the only man I've ever obeyed and the only, the only man I will give my obedience to. And he, he's so proud. He'll do that with somebody great. He's got a lot of pride to overcome. But Alyosha started on, Alyosha's gonna go his own way. They're not gonna be together. So one of my questions, and it's an open-ended question, I don't have an answer, but, but it seems to me that what Dostoevsky is doing is showing you've got these two forces, this religious background dying out, but taking a new form. It's not going to be the institution of the elders. Alias is going to the world. And Kolya, who's like a secular humanist who believes in the independence of reason, 
and who's very much motivated by his pride. So, and, and my concern is um, what happens after this novel, and you know I've already said it, that you've got um, um, Solzhenitsyn with um, all of the books that he's going to write and his exile from communist Russia. But communist Russia is already there. So let me just ask this one question, then I'm going to, I wanted to read the statement, but what I would like to do is ask all of you, if you look at my notes, read my last closing comments, because I'd hope to have time to read them here, but I, I don't want, I want to stop. Here's my question, it's a serious question. I'm making the argument that one of the, one of the things that's missing in Russia is a religion capable of unifying people for a religious purpose. The Orthodox Church cannot do that because it's separated. And so long as it's separated and people are more concerned about their differences, they'll have less reason to come together to fight a common battle. And you've got an entire people becoming communistic, socialistic. So the religious question is not a small one for me. My question is, and I, this, I know it's probably put a damper on the ending, is Alyosha and Kolya sufficient to answer the forces of enlightenment that we've been watching come into Russia. The ending is hopeful. We can't look at it in any other way. And yet, when we look at those two, and they're alone, they're gonna go off into the world. They've got the boys behind with memory. Now, one last thing, but I want everybody to take this seriously. One of the arguments that I made when we did the, uh, the uh, um, apologetic section, um, when we were dealing with the Fidia Ratio and Catholicism and I made the argument and we were and made it with some emphasis when we did um, Boethius, Consolation of Philosophy. Because remember, at one point Boethius talks about anamnesis. anamnesis. It's the enactment of bringing the past into the present and making it real now. In the Platonic world, we're meant, um, all, all knowledge is associated with memory because we're, we're meant to recall all those things we've lost. The Protestant world, the lar largely, says, do this in remembrance of me, but not with any sense that the um, sacraments are alive and living. So the sense of the sacred and mystery is partly gone because it's relegated to memory. Remember this. The emphasis on the end of the book was on memory. That's Platonic. It's Protestant. The emphasis in Aristotelian word in Catholicism is that's not relegated to the past. The past is brought into the present and made living now. Is there a power sufficient in Russia now capable of unifying a people to answer this threat of all of these enlightenment ideas? I know that puts a sort of gray color, but it's a serious one. Um, I don't want to undermine the importance of memory. I hope I'm not being understood that way. Memory is a re it's one of our greatest gifts. But there's a difference between do this in memory of me, bringing the past into the present and keeping it alive, and keeping something in the past and recalling it. One's Platonic, one's Aristotelian, one's Protestant, one's Catholic. So, um, Dostoevsky leaves us in a moment of hope. These young kids are the promise for the future. Turn the page. 
where are we? Um, for me, it's a sobering question. I just would like to leave it for you all. Let's stop. You all have a good break. Um, if you need cheering up, read Hemingway. <laughs> By the way, I, 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 the books, I think you're going to enjoy these stories. They, they are wonderful stories. Um, anyway, you guys have a good break and, and be good. One week. I make.